welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, May 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a look at Julian Castro's immigration plan, what we learned from the documentary Running with Beto, and how the candidates are preparing or not preparing for June's DNC debates. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, I want to dig into a plan that was released one week before this show actually began. Back on April 1st, Julian Castro released his People First Immigration Plan, and I've barely talked about it on this show, so let's fix that. In a Medium post titled Putting People First, Castro wrote about his grandmother's immigration to the U.S. from Mexico. Reading from that article, quote, One of my strongest memories of my grandmother is the way she would tell my twin brother Joaquin and me about how she came to this country as a child after being separated from her dying mother. Even as a 70-year-old woman, when she recounted those moments, she would cry like the 7-year-old girl she was when it happened, sobbing that she never got to say goodbye. I see her image in the children at our borders today. End quote. Castro proceeds to talk about the current administration's policies toward immigrants and how he sees a fundamental misconception there. Reading again from the piece, quote, The president's failure in this defining moment was complete. It was a failure of leadership, a failure of policy, and a failure of conscience. But those all stemmed from an original and foundational failure, a failure to understand that despite the rhetoric, when we see families seeking refuge, we don't see criminals or an invasion or a threat to national security. We see kids, we see parents, we see people. We see people first because we are people first. And it's time for an immigration policy that puts people first. End quote. What Castro is getting at here is essentially the othering of immigrants. Another way to put that is to see groups of people as essentially us and them. And in Castro's view, at least in my reading of that passage, he sees the Trump administration embracing that kind of division, while Castro himself does not see the world that way. Maybe part of that is because he himself is part of both groups. He is both the grandchild of an immigrant and also an American. This is true and normal for many of us in this country and in many countries around the world. Castro's point is that there is no us versus them on this issue because we are them. He is just one of tens of millions of examples. And by the way, President Trump is one too. Trump's grandfather immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. Okay, so beyond the inspiration and foundational beliefs part, Castro starts getting into specific policies, and there are lots of them. First, he calls for a series of reforms to the existing system for legal immigration. Those include a clear pathway to legal citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people living in the U.S. today. He also calls for protection for the Dreamers and their parents and those who are here under temporary protected status. He wants to revamp the visa system. And further, he calls for an end to the three- and ten-year periods that currently require undocumented people to leave the country for years in order to gain citizenship. Okay, and that's just the beginning. In the next section, Castro lays out a series of proposals about how to handle the border. Reading from the article, quote, We need to create a secure and humane border. 
the worst of the government's actions stem from a little-known but significant policy that is central to today's inhumane and flawed immigration system. Section 1325. This antiquated law dates back to the era when my grandmother presented herself at Texas's Eagle Pass border crossing, remanded as an orphan to her nearest relatives in San Antonio. In that decade, the 1920s, the U.S. government moved to cut off a wave of Mexican immigrants like her. These laws got a new life in 2005, when the Bush administration decided to charge those that crossed the border with criminal violations rather than civil ones. This shift to criminalize immigration is at the core of many of this administration's most egregious immigration policies, from family separation, to indiscriminate ICE raids, to targeting asylum seekers. It also underlies some of this administration's most damaging rhetoric that vilifies immigrants and families. End quote. And then moving on, Castro calls to modernize ports of entry into the U.S., He calls for refocusing customs and border protection on drug smuggling and human trafficking. Then he calls for ICE, also known as Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, to be split in half, taking its national security functions and moving them within the Department of Homeland Security, and, quote, reassigning the enforcement functions to other agencies as appropriate to increase oversight and raise standards, end quote. And that's not nearly all. In his final section, Castro proposes what he calls a 21st century Marshall Plan for Central America. Now, in case you've forgotten what the Marshall Plan was, it was a law enacted by the U.S. in 1948 to help rebuild Western European economies after World War II. In part because that's where the fighting was, that's where the destruction happened, not here on U.S. soil but also because it was in our strategic interest to keep those countries in good shape. Anyway, Castro's idea is basically to solve the root problem that is driving migrants from their homes in certain dangerous communities in Central America. Rather than cut aid to those countries like Trump has done, Castro would explicitly invest in stabilizing the region, saying that this, quote, strengthens global relationships and helps ensure that all people can find the safety and stability they seek in their home countries, end quote. In other words, he would reduce the pressure that drives some forms of migration, mainly people seeking asylum because of violence in their home countries, by trying to stop that violence. That is a root cause solution, and it is a strategic way to spend money that the U.S. has done before. Castro sums up his case in a powerful set of paragraphs. Quote, Last summer, I visited our southern border in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, seeing for myself how our immigration policy is failing to uphold our nation's values. I went to the detention centers where children were held apart from their parents. I sat in on court proceedings for immigrants who were charged with 1325 violations. I have seen children too small to speak sitting alone in court designated threats to our nation. Criminals. Last year, the Trump administration told Americans that if we could just be cruel enough to separate little children from their parents, that cruelty would deter more families from seeking asylum at our southern border. It turns out this was totally wrong, both morally and factually. More families are coming. Their policy of cruelty is a failure, and we should choose compassion instead. We should choose people first. End quote. Okay. So here's the thing. 
All of this policy was laid out in an article on Medium that is just over 1,200 words. It takes about six minutes to read, probably less than what this segment will take to listen to. He also links at the very end to a summary of the policy on his campaign site, which is actually about the same length, but has more detail because it's written as bullet points. It's the same plan, but with many more specifics on which laws he would like to change, and adding a bunch of sub-items like, oh, for example, preventing U.S. veterans from being deported due to their immigration status. As with all policy proposals, I ask, what will this cost and how does the candidate propose to pay for it? Castro doesn't get into that at all in either of his documents on the proposal. He briefly mentions that he wants the 21st Century Marshall Plan for Central America to be partly supported, that means funded, by partner countries in the region, but there are no specific cost or funding numbers listed. As usual, I'm not sure if this is because the cost is hard to estimate, or we're just very early in the cycle, or simply that Castro doesn't think it matters, that he sees it as a moral imperative. But in any case, there is no discussion of the financials of these policies. And there's one last piece here. One key note is that some of what Castro proposes could be accomplished by executive action. Not nearly all of it, let's be clear about that but he could at least chip away at some of these items even with an unwilling Congress. So, on that last part, here's a clip from Castro's appearance on Late Night with Seth Meyers last week. Listen in. I think everyone, uh, or I should say many people, are critical of uh, the Trump administration's uh, policy in regards to uh, immigration. But obviously, you know, Barack Obama, you know, he uh, deported record number of people, particularly early in his presidency. How do, you, how do you distinguish yourself not just from what President Trump did, but what President Obama and administration you worked for did? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what happened in the Obama administration is that the Obama administration over the years got stronger, got better on that issue of immigration, right? I mean, in 2014, 2012, you had DACA, that was released. And then in 2014, they did DAPA, which was supposed to cover the parents. Um, The number of deportations of people actually went down through Mm -hmm. those years. And uh, the other lesson that I think we learned from that administration was that when we have the chance, when we have the Democratic majority, because I think that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. Uh, That what we learned is that from the 2009-2010 experiences, don't wait on immigration reform. Like, we're not going to wait this mm-hmm. time. We're going to push sensible immigration reform. Okay, and then they get into a discussion of how hard it will be to win the Senate, and gee, wouldn't it be smart for a bunch of the current presidential field to run for Senate seats? But that is a topic for another day. Castro's policy documents are linked in the show notes, along with the entire Seth Meyers interview and a bunch of analysis by Vox. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, so I finally watched the HBO documentary Running with Beto. It follows Beto O'Rourke as he challenges Ted Cruz in the 2018 Texas Senate race. O'Rourke visits every county in the state, and not at all a spoiler at this point, he narrowly loses the election. I want to give you some of my thoughts on this film. But first up, disclosure time. During that 2018 election cycle, I donated 100 bucks to O'Rourke. He was one of several candidates that I donated to, most of them via swing left. None of them managed to actually swing anything left, but that's a whole other discussion. For the record, in this cycle, I have not donated to any candidate, and I do not expect to. Okay, with that business out of the way, this documentary is half exciting and half super depressing. We all know how it ends, so watching a group of people work their asses off is kind of painful. To its credit, the film does put us right in the middle of the excitement of an insurgent campaign, but I couldn't help looking at every single person working days and nights and overtime and more nights and knowing that they would not achieve their main goal. It is a real bummer. The film gives us plenty of classic O'Rourke material. He stands on top of things, he gives rousing speeches to small crowds, he drives a lot, he eats a lot. It's fun stuff, but at the same time, it doesn't tell us much that is new about this person. I'm going to read one reaction from a Primary Ride home listener on Twitter. That's Maddie. Hey, Maddie. She wrote, in part, quote, Whatever positive or negative opinions you have of Beto will be reinforced. End quote. And honestly, that's it. Right there. I don't think this film will change anything about her work's popularity as a candidate now. And that's exactly as it should be. It's a documentary about a campaign that already happened, not a promo for a candidate running right now. In the film, we do get a rare look at O'Rourke's family, including three young kids and his wife, Amy Hoover Sanders. She talks about how the couple made the decision to run in the first place and the effect of having her husband in D.C. for his job in the House representing Texas. That, honestly, is pretty tough stuff. At one point during the Senate campaign, the kids start writing letters to their father in an effort to stay connected. He writes them back, but the whole thing is heartbreaking. Toward the end, I had to ask myself, how could anybody go through a process so grueling, lose the race, and then decide to do it all over again, but bigger and with worse odds? And if this is what's happening to one candidate running for Senate, and this is the impact on his family, what exactly is happening to the dozens of other candidates and their families as these people compete in the presidential race? It's enough to make you feel, how do I put this, um, human compassion for politicians? You know, this is real stuff. These are real people. We forget that sometimes. All right, my last thought on this has to do with profanity. And I am a fan of profanity. I just don't use it that much on the show. We see tons of volunteers and the candidate himself swearing up a storm, and it is awesome. In fact, there's one moment in the film where O'Rourke drops an F-bomb on live TV, and it basically validates the entire campaign for one hardworking volunteer. 
There is something deeply authentic about this salty language that tells you, hey, the filter is currently turned off. And in a campaign with so many cameras running all the time, it's important to feel that legitimate, unfiltered moment of connection. Okay, so that's it for this review. The film is out now on HBO. I recommend it if you're curious about O'Rourke, but also if you're curious about what a campaign by a Democrat in a red state actually looks like on the ground. And last up today, in an article for New York Magazine titled No One Knows How to Prepare for the Democratic Debates, Gabriel Debedinetti gets into the challenge everyone knows is coming, but no one knows quite how to prepare for those first DNC debates on June 26th and 27th. So look, debate prep is a well-known and fairly well-defined part of the political process. There are professionals who come into campaigns to consult on this stuff. But this year, the Democratic primary candidates have some very special problems. Reading from the article, quote, It's not just that the field of candidates is hilariously large, which means the group will be divvied up into two heats of 10 candidates over two nights, an arrangement none of them or the expert debate coaches who have been hired has ever experienced before. And it's not that the candidates don't yet know who's actually going to make the stage, let alone who they'll be facing on their night. The campaigns will find that out in two weeks, but they can't fully design their attacks until then, since going after someone who's not there to defend him or herself is a tricky task. It's not even all the looming questions about the debate's format, which they assume will be sorted out in the coming days. Who's asking the questions? How much time will any of them get? Enough to even make a point? What are the ground rules for responding to other candidates? Will they be sitting or standing or roving? It's that they all know the contest for the 2020 nomination might now be just weeks away from turning into a televised free-for-all, and they have to figure out how to one-up nine other people on stage without being too cringe-inducing about it. End quote. Yeah, so you heard that right. As of today, right now, the candidates don't know who they'll be facing, don't know the restrictions on their answers, don't know if time limits will be equal or somehow based on polls or other factors, don't know how the debate will be physically arranged, and don't know if the moderator is asking questions or how. In other words, they know nothing except that on one of those hot Miami nights, they'll be in a room of 10 candidates trying to make a good impression. This is shaping up either to be great TV or a total disaster, and actually, probably both. In the piece, Debitanetti repeatedly cites campaigns talking about how to make a splash, much like Carly Fiorina did in the Republican primary debates last cycle. Basically, every campaign is looking for some way to get the media to cover them the next day. But exactly how to do that is absolutely up for grabs. Do you attack someone else with a real zinger? Do you try to engineer a viral moment somehow? Do you just try not to hurt yourself? It's genuinely a weird problem, and most candidates assume they'll only get five to ten minutes to speak, and that ain't much. Okay, so there is a whole lot more to this article, including tons of quotes from actual debate prep pros, and a whole thing about actual campaigns, like right now, that are literally saying they are intentionally not preparing for the debate because it is pointless. And to be honest, maybe that's the best strategy. I don't know. So get your popcorn ready and check out the second to last link in the show notes for more. 
Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. I want to point you to a handy Twitter account that I just found out about called at Lead Past. It's a project of the Washington Post that reminds us every day who was currently leading on this day in the presidential election cycles for 2008, 2012, and 2016. It's also a countdown, reminding us that today there are 523 days to go until the general election. Okay, that's at L-E-D-P-A-S-T, spelled like Led Zeppelin. Anybody? People know who Led Zeppelin is, right? Okay, great. All right. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.